Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 174. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetchaPanPuppets.com, Thacting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I am good. Yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, not doing as well as Austin Matthews, who is <laughs> just deciding to score every game because he can, apparently can do that. He is on the most unbelievable heater. And it's gone on so long, it's like, this is not even just a heater anymore. This is just a sustained level of insane play. Right. You know that joke people make on Twitter? It's like, if I were an NHL hockey player, I would just choose to score every game. Like, yeah. Matthews is actually doing that. <laughs> yeah. At uh, time of recording, he's had 51 goals in his last 50 games. Now, you know, he didn't do it off the start of the season or anything like that. But that is not something that I envisioned as possible in the modern NHL. You know, Mario Lemieux did it in 95-96, and Lemieux is obviously a top-five player in the history of the sport. And then we sort of descended into the trap era, and, you know, Lemieux still scored on a going-forward basis. But generally speaking, offense went down. And now offense as a whole is ticked up a bit, and Matthews is scoring in a way we haven't seen anyone do in decades. Mm -hmm. Um, Just unreal. We were just going to talk about that a little bit. Just for the sake of commemorating some insane stuff that's going on, because even though I think everyone listening to this is well aware that Austin Matthews is good, mm-hmm. um, it's this mammoth, incredibly rare thing that is going on right in front of us, so we don't want to totally take it for granted. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it's, I don't know, it's just, it, it's, it's, so, it's so bizarre to, to just watch a game and be so confident someone will score and it, it makes no sense because it's like it feels so random at times but he's he's so talented that like, he gets so many opportunities that it doesn't even feel that crazy when he scores yeah like this is something that um i was thinking about in the lead up to this segment and i'm indebted also to justin Bourne, who had an article about this this week lots of people writing about matthews right now for obvious reasons um matthews doesn't have the single gigantic Ovechkin one-timer-esque weapon. He has a lot of things that he's very, very good at, don't get me wrong. But the most distinctive thing about him is that he can, at this point in his career, beat you pretty much any way possible. There is no element of goal scoring that he can't do now, and he has an incredible sense of opportunism in terms of when the defense isn't set, when the goalie isn't set, when the goalie is just recovering, and when a tiny change in the angle of his release can open up an opportunity. He just has an instinct for that, that, you know, combined with a ton of practice and skill, that is unlike anyone I can remember seeing. Um, you know, a couple of years back, we talked about him working on his slap shot, and we were thinking, dude, you're already you know, among the greatest goal scorers, why don't you work on other stuff? Well, he also got better defensively. Yeah. And simultaneously added so many weapons that he is now the best goal scorer in the world at the present time. So he owned us on that one. <laughs> he, he did. He did. Good for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I guess something that I find quite impressive about him is... He plays like a power forward without ever, without ever making you really feel he's like a power forward. But like, mm. this is something Bourne mentioned as well in that piece, which again was very good. He does weaponize his size, right? And I think there were there are definitely people at times who have criticized him 
for not being a particularly rough player. Like he, he has, he's clearly incredibly physically strong and physically imposing, mm-hmm. right? But he isn't someone who lays a ton of hits. He isn't someone who is going to blow up the opposition. But he has functional toughness, mm-hmm. right? Which is something a word I a phrase I use all the time, and I think he does use his size in ways that augment his goal scoring. So, so many of his goals happen to be because he has great position in the net because, like, a defender just can't move him, mm-hmm. right? And uh, we, we all know about his takeaway prowess and his ability to win pucks along boards, you know, especially in the offensive zone that creates a lot of opportunities for both him and Marner. But, yeah, he, he's, his use of his physical attributes is really impressive and really notable, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's more subtle than a lot of than how, for example, Prime Milan Lucic used his physical abilities, but it's not any less effective or not any less like dependent on those physical abilities, right? We, we should also obviously give credit to, to Marner, who's, on a, who's been on a crazy heater of his own that's lasted like 50 games. Um, and I guess like, we, we have been among the many people who have criticized Marner and said he's not worth his contract. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his play over the last basically this stretch of the season has been among the very best players in the league, mm-hmm. um, which is what he needs to be to justify his contract to be clear. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, credit where it's due, he's hitting that level. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been genuinely really impressed with him. Um, the Leafs actually beat the Dallas stars earlier this week in overtime. And there was a goal three on three that involved both Matthews and Marner. And I actually just wanted to talk through that briefly because I think it's a good representation of how this season is coming together, both in terms of what Matthews is doing and how Marner is contributing to that uh, in one example. Um, so to set the stage for you, it's 3v3 overtime. We've still playing the Dallas Stars. William Nylander has just dropped the puck inside the blue line for Austin Matthews. The Stars have Tyler Sagan, Joe Pavelski, both forwards, and Ryan Suter, who's a defenseman, out there. Matthews takes the puck, looks up, sees these three players are all between him and the net, decides to cycle back. He goes back towards his own blue line, and he goes towards the right side of the ice, where Tyler Sagan, who, God bless him, is not going to be mistaken for a defensive defenseman anytime soon, is sort of trying to play defense. I think that's on purpose. I could be wrong. He could just be preferring the cut in from the right wing, which is what he eventually does. But I think he sees an opportunity there. Now, as he's going through there, it looks like Matthews has just decided to take the game over. And we had a comment in our recap saying, why doesn't he just do that all the time? But there were a couple things that came together. One of them was that defensive opportunity. The other is that Mitch Marner comes onto the ice and stops right in front of Joe Pavelski, give or take about three feet. He doesn't contact him. It's not interference. It's just enough that Pavelski has to slow down. And because Matthews already has a couple steps going through the neutral zone, that's all it takes to take Pavelski out of the play. He does not catch Matthews again. Um, Matthews then streaks down the right wing, where it's now down to Tyler Sagan to stop him. And Sagan doesn't have a lot of momentum and is trying to pivot from backwards to forwards going the wrong way turning away from Matthews and it goes very poorly by the time he comes out of the pivot Matthews is already cutting by him 
And as we've just talked about, Matthews is a big boy. He's 6'3", 220 or something like that. He's very hard to stop once he has momentum. After that, the goal on Scott Wedgwood itself, Matthews has made it feel like a foregone conclusion because he's just cut through the entire Dallas Stars 3v3 team. But yeah, he cuts around him and then tucks the puck in. I think that that's a good representation of, one, his sense for when there's an opportunity on the ice that he can take advantage of. In this case, Tyler Sagan trying to play defense. Two, Mitch Marner doing something there to open up space. Despite Mitch Marner not being very big. Despite the fact that Mitch Marner didn't get a point on that goal. Um, and then finally, it's just that pure power forward stuff we were talking about at the top of the segment. Matthews is very hard to stop. Mm-hmm. Um I hope that wasn't too granular, but I thought it was just a cool confluence of different things. Yeah, no, I, I I didn't pick up on on Marner with the quasi screen uh, when I when I watched that. So that, I think that was that was very useful. I mean, that line has just been absurdly hot for a long time, um, and I mean, I think I think there's probably some parts there's some there's some part of me that's like, is it smart to have kind of that line together versus spreading out Matthews and Marner? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, over over two lines essentially, um, but like they're going so well that it's it, it, you just it's hard to justify taking that away, even if it even if you can make it like a fairly cogent case for it maybe being better for the Leafs. Yeah, at this current level, you're just looking and you're saying, okay, this line is annihilating pretty much anything before it. Um, Andrew Berkshire, friend and f- frequent enemy of this podcast, um, had a tweet talking about how in recent months. Uh, the the Leafs, while Matthews and Marner are on, have had a dreadful save percentage because their goaltending is kind of tanked. And still, they're handily outscoring their opposition because the offense is ungodly. Like, when you have a save percentage on ice, well south of 900, and you're still getting 60% of the goals, that means you are torching everything that's happening at the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really kind of what we would hope for from this line, where you have two $11 million players... It's supposed to look like this, where they are unanswerable. Yes. And, and to their credit, they've done that. And then you also have Michael Bunting just making everyone really mad. I need, I need to know what he does to make everyone so mad. I, I, I haven't seen this. We, the Leafs are not short on pests in recent history. Kadri made people mad. Komarov made people mad. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of them do it to the degree that Michael Bunting does. There is something about Michael Bunting that drives everyone nuts. And it's not, you know lost on me some of the things that go into that does he embellish a little bit yes he does does he talk shit absolutely but there are guys who both embellish and talk shit all over the nhl there is something about michael bunting that is apparently really personally irritating because he's our guy i enjoy it thoroughly yeah but just the (laughs) amount of times that like i don't know you'll you'll there's just a random play stoppage because some guy has decided to like feed bunting their fists <laughs> for no obvious reason. For, like, even after Matthews' second goal yesterday, he, he goes and like talks shit. Bunting goes and talks shit to, to Weidman, I think. Yeah. And then <clears throat> Weidman like is so enraged he he like uh, goes after Bunting, which I feel like people talk shit after goals all the time, and it doesn't always result in scrums. But like Bunting, he I don't something about him is just absurdly punchable. Yes, there, you know, and I can think of a few players like that in history. I always thought Maxime Lapierre, mm-hmm. if you just saw his face in any scrum, you were like, oh, I get why guys want to punch him. 
Like he just he, he like and he had this stupid goatee and he looked like mm. a comic book villain. Um but I guess bunting has a bit of that effect on people. Um uh, anyway, he's fit seamlessly into that line and obviously everyone knows including Michael Bunting himself, he's by far the third most important person on it. At the same time, this guy is on the verge of breaking 60 points. Like it's working real well and there's been a real chemistry fit. The line is having terrific results in everything again, except that save percentage dip. Um, yeah, like, it, it's been really incredible. And as much as we're constantly looking for what's going to go wrong for the Toronto Maple Leafs in the playoffs or what things do they have to overcome, mm-hmm. this first line has just been unbelievable. They've been probably the best line in hockey recently. Um, you know, you can put forward the Bergeron line or McDavid, but... I, I think or the Calgary been, line. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Um, so yeah, like they've they've just been ridiculous, and that starts with Austin Matthews, who, you know, we talked about the dream for him would be to seriously contend for the Selkie and the Rocket in the same year. I think you can say he's pretty much done that. He's probably not going to get the Rocket Richard. Sorry, he's going to get the Rocket Richard. He's probably not going to get the Selkie or serious consideration because he doesn't kill penalties. But 5v5, he's been an extremely good possession player, combined with a great sniper. And that's just a really almost unique combination of skills. It, it's sort of a one-of-one one type of deal, right? Like, there's, there's not that many players skill-wise who you can compare Austin Matthews to, right? Mm-hmm. And like even, even great defensive players through history, like... Um, who have also been phenomenal offensive players, like Sergei Fedorov, for example, mm-hmm. right? You know, again, Sergei Fedorov is an inner circle Hall of Famer, right? But I don't think he had the offensive upside that Matthews does. Yeah, like it's just, it's very rare to have anyone who has this kind of dominance, right? Like, I, so I'm looking it up now. Fedorov's career high is 56 goals in 93-94, which is obviously a much more mm-hmm. offensively tilted environment, and Matthews has has beaten that in yeah. you know a, a, a lower scoring environment nonetheless and i mean that was a year where fedorov won the heart you know won won the pearson won the selkie like yeah uh, you know and obviously it's no knock on anyone else it's just like an incredible combination of abilities that have come together for this player and i think in all honesty he does deserve the heart trophy mm-hmm. I've, I've come around to that opinion and you know maybe i'm a homer by all means i i don't make any bones about that but i've never really thought that before i thought he was in you know in contention last year with mcdavid you know as an aside if we could get through this sort of toronto edmonton media pissing match a little bit it would be kind of interesting to actually compare these two players in the heart trophy like there's so much discussion that's just oriented towards Oh, yeah, well, this guy, you know, Matthews plays so much with Marner or something like this. Uh, or, or, like, to tear down one of the two candidates. And, you know, I, I think there are things to recommend both of them. But it's an interesting contrast in styles where Matthews is this kind of possession god who can snipe, whereas McDavid is, like, the most dangerous rush player who may have ever existed mm-hmm. and who can operate at a speed that is just very, very hard for anyone else to keep up with you, you know it's it's actually a kind of a cool contrast in styles yeah um, no it is you know 
But I, to I'm going to do an annoying Leafs thing and just like kind of use something about McDavid to make Matthews seem more special. Yeah. But to to the point we're talking about, about like Matthews' style being so sort of unique. Like we have seen a player like McDavid before, not at his level, right? Like he's he's the evolutionary Pavel Pavel Bure. But like that that's what Bure did. That was his thing. He was just faster than everyone and thought faster than everyone. And his hands moved faster than everyone, mm-hmm. and we didn't see it for that long. But like. What we're seeing now is like essentially a better version of that, right? Mm-hmm. Now I, I'm not a hockey encyclopedia. I'm sure there's other people who can think of better comparisons, but I can't think of a closer comparison to. I can't think of someone who has done kind of specifically what Matthews does in the way he does it, mm-hmm. right? Like when we see goal scoring centers, like Stamkos was a, a goal scoring center for a long time. He, he did it in a very qualitatively different way to Matthews, mm-hmm. right? And you know, without Matthews' ability to control play, yeah, and to have a, a great defensive impact. Um, again, it's that combination of different abilities that we're seeing. And that's, uh, that's pretty incredible. You know, the, the Leafs have not had, uh, a Hart Trophy winner since Ted Kennedy, mm-hmm. um, which is over half a century ago. They haven't had anyone seriously contend for it since Doug Gilmore in, in that fantastic year he had, um, in the early nineties, you know, it's, it is rare to get to watch a player on your team at this level. Extremely rare. Mm-hmm. You, you know, and, and I, I think you could say a lot of franchises have never had a player who's ever played at a level like Matthews is on right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I think it's... So, I mean, the, on, the, on, I mean, the only person I'm old enough to watch who's even in contention for this is, is, is Sundin. But, mm-hmm. like, it's hard to watch Matthews and think that there's a Leaf who has played better. Mm-hmm. Right, and like, certainly in like the modern era, or like, you know, an era that we can actually compare. Yeah, and, and Sundin's thing, for the record, I am a huge Matt Sundin fan. Yes. You know, he, he carried this franchise for a long time to some pretty remarkable success in, in a way that Matthews has not yet done in the playoffs. But Sundin's thing was that he was a top 15 player in the world or so for like 10 straight years. Like clockwork, and he would do it kind of regardless of who you played him with. Matthew's thing right now is, we're saying, is he at a level equal to or currently even a little above the consensus best player on the planet? It was McDavid. That's just, it's not a conversation I ever think we were able to have with Sundin because no. th- there were just these, these titanic players, you, you know, Lady Earl Lemieux and Gretzky and Yager, um, Sakic, Iserman. So... Yeah, I, I mean, this is just sort of a stop and smell the roses podcast because the Leafs have clinched the playoff spot now. You'd like them to get home ice. We may be looking at another matchup with the Bruins, God help me. I believe that's the most likely outcome as of right now per, um, per Dom Lachishan, and I can, I can check hockey vis in just a second as well. But yeah. basically, the Bruins have been on quite a run and have yes. usurped second place, or sorry, third place from Tampa. So they have like an advantage, and they look like a better team right now. But yeah, Hockey Viz has this as fifty-one percent to play the Bruins, and then obviously forty-nine percent to play the Field. Yes, so there's certainly a strong possibility we will be doing that. Um, we've done <laughs> Leafs Bruins previews uh, multiple times. Yes, on this podcast, I, I, probably if you did some like analysis of our of our podcast, probably the modal podcast is at least Bruins yeah. podcast. We've done, we've done like 12 of them because we do like, you know, post-game reactions in the playoffs and stuff like that. 
Yes, we know them painfully well. And if we play them again, we will once again reacquaint ourselves with that fucking team. But at present, now is a good time to just kind of sit back and appreciate what a season we're seeing from Austin mm. Matthews. Yeah, for sure. Now, I guess the Leafs have, exp- have seen, you know, greatness from, from Matthews and Marners we covered this year. But we should also appreciate the greatness that is Justin Hall. <laughs> when I think of the word greatness, I think of a string of names. I think of, you know, Alexander the Great, Austin Matthews, Abraham Lincoln, Jesus Christ, Justin Hall. <laughs> These are Why don't the... you repeat yourself? <laughs> I know, I'm obviously just enumerating things that we all know are on a comparable level with each other. Uh, Justin Hall has been somewhat maligned this season. And... Primarily for the, for the decline of the Muzz-Hall pairing. Yes. For a couple of seasons, Jake Muzzin and Justin Hall were a legit shutdown pairing in the NHL full stop. They played hard competition... They put up good results. It worked. It was a real thing. And I think it's worth keeping sight of that because it's relevant. This year, Muzzin Hall spent the first few months of the season absolutely in the toilet in terms of save percentage while they were on the ice. There was some decline in terms of what they were allowing too. Um, it was still better than maybe it seems like. Like that pairing was is actually well above water in XV while it's on the ice. Mm-hmm. But the goals were bad. You, you know, they were unpleasant. And, you know, if you watch your team fish it out of your net enough times behind particular players, you will start to form that association. I think Justin Hall, to be clear, is like a fifth defenseman. I think he's always been basically a fifth defenseman. He's kind of rangy. He's not tremendously physical. He's also not insanely fast. But he's sort of a competent puck mover, and there was some synergy with Jake Muzzin. Um, Hall also plays the right side as a natural righty, which is not the most common thing in the NHL. You know, there are always more left defensemen than right. Um, I think that there's actually a lot of evidence that Justin Hall is basically the same guy he was before, except for a PDO slump. Mm-hmm. And when I did a mailbag this week on the site, I got a lot of questions about people who were screaming furious at Muzzin Hall as a pairing. They were not happy with them. And they said, you know, is Keith ever going to wake up and break up these two players? There was also a lot of upset that Hall was playing last night over Timothy Lilligren, uh, who, you know, is new, has been playing quite well this year, and people want to see more of. I think it is still good to remember. Justin Hall has had a couple of good years. He played second fiddle to a good partner, but he's done that again this year with TJ Brody. Yes, the numbers with Hall and Brody together are quite good. Yeah, like real good. Um, Hall has sort of quietly righted the ship since about January, February of this year. Like the last couple of months have gone well. Mm-hmm. And I think there is some decline on Jake Muzzin's side. And to be clear, Jake Muzzin had the duty of carrying that pairing. He was the yeah. stronger party. Now he can't do it. But I think Justin Hall is the same guy who can sort of keep up with a better partner as the Brody minutes show. And I think with the save percentage not going quite as hard against him, 
you start to see that more often. Um, I don't think it's crazy to want to hope Muzzin Hall get it together or to play Brody Hall on a more serious basis. Um, just because, you know, I get why people are mad. Don't get me wrong. He's been on for some goals against, but I think we've lost a little bit of sight of him being like a fine enough player. And I just kind of wanted to lay that out because it seems to me like everyone is pretty mad at him now. Yeah, I think the thing that's worrisome mm-hmm. in, in, in all settings is that like both Hall, Muzzin with Tavares and Hall, Brody with Tavares haven't been good. And I think that that's like the existential crisis that the Leafs mm-hmm. face, right? And that I guess that that's part of why we, we've talked so recently or so much recently about like, whatever pairing is playing is, or is that Giordano's on. Like, do we stable that to Tavares? Because other pairings haven't really... Like, other pairings besides, you know, the Riley pairing, which are going to want to stick with Matthews as much as possible, um, just haven't had great results with Tavares this year. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, yeah, like, that's... I think that's the concern still, and that that's still what, what needs to be fixed. It, it The numbers are... It, it's a small sample with... Hall, Brody, Tavares, it's like 75 minutes or something like that. And, like, the mm-hmm. XG is still fine, but not great. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's significantly worse with Hall, Muzzin, Tavares. And I think that's, I think, to some extent, what people are reacting to as well, is how they're doing in, like, the minutes with the important players. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, like, you, you look at Hall's numbers just generally this year, and they, they, they don't look bad. He still looks like a guy who can, as you said, do exactly what he's done the last few years. Give him a solid... Like a comfortable top four partner, and you know reasonable usage. Like it doesn't have to be easy, but probably you you know you can't use him the way you'd use um, Alex Petrangelo. Mm-hmm. And he will return solid results for you. Yeah, I just um, I feel like I have to prime people for this because I expect Justin Hall to play in the playoffs mm-hmm. over probably Timothy Liljegren if it comes to that. You know, we'll see if, who's healthy, if, but. If you expect Keith to play Lilligren ahead of Hall, I'm, I'm like I, it. It seems unsurprising that that Lilligren would would not be played. I mean, you, you with Giordano, Lilligren's gotten some real boy usage, mm-hmm. right? But you know, you look at how Keith uses him in terms of leverage deployment, and you, that's it's a, this great graph that Mike McCurdy has on HockeyViz, which basically tells you um, in. Do who plays in important minutes? Like who plays when the value of a goal is very high to your win probability, mm-hmm. or who plays when the value of not of like preventing a goal is very high to your win probability? Mm-hmm. And Lilligren and Sandine, to be clear, are not used in defensively important situations at all. You and and Hall is the Leafs' most used players in in that position. Now part of that is due to a dearth of options on the right side, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's sometimes where you want like a natural right-hander there, and you have Hall, and Hall and Brody are basically tied in this department. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like it's it's a little naive, I think, to expect Keith to take to voluntarily give up his own security blanket for a guy that he pretty clearly is only now starting to trust when paired with a Norris winner. Right. Like, I keep thinking. When I try to analyze the Leafs, I try to look at it with saying, okay, if I hadn't followed this as closely as I do, if I weren't as wrapped up in every little minutiae of 
this player comes in, this player comes out, how many minutes is this guy playing? If we just treated them like an opponent that were coming to us and we were looking at them with somewhat fresh eyes, I would look and I would say, hey, Liljegren is neat, but he could be just another from the Isle of third-pairing defensemen with good fancy stats. Hall has done hard minutes extensively in the past. They will play him. And I think almost every coach would do that. I get why some people are still saying, look, Liljegren is emerging as what could be a meaningful long-term player on the right side. I'm not confident either way on that. You know, I, I worry about his physical limitations. I also respect that he's had more success this year than I anticipated. But I think it makes a certain amount of sense to go back to the guy who has done this job at the NHL level quite well for a couple of years now. And overreacting to a PDO slump is the kind of thing that we call out when it's happening to a player that people like more. Mm-hmm. You know, Justin Hall, unfortunately, is not quite as well-beloved. None of this is to get carried away and say, oh, I think that he's actually like a, a star player in, in disguise. I'm just saying I think he's a competent option, and I think he will be used as one. Yeah, I I, I agree. <laughs> and he's going to play an important role in wh- whoever we face in the first round, in, in whatever series that is, right? Like, we're... Mm-hmm. We're going to use Hall effectively as our <coughs> as our second pairing right guy, right yeah. handed defenseman. So, brace yourselves for that. Um, so every now and then on this podcast, we try to look at things we were right and or wrong about, and to learn because otherwise, you know, we're just kind of whistling Dixie, thinking we're so great all the time. Mm-hmm. Podcast. I feel like are... we've been wrong a lot, like recently. <laughs> it's been a rough run sometimes. Uh, we have stretches where we feel like we're nailing it, and then we have stretches where uh, we feel like we slip on a banana peel a whole lot. So this was sort of a specific angle that I've been thinking about really since the trade deadline. Um, the truth is, Kyle Dubas has been GM for a while now. He's generally someone we like. We think he's a smart guy. We like how he approaches things. And I've mentioned before on this podcast, even when I don't 100% agree with what he did, The process by which he got to doing it almost always makes sense to me. I get him to some extent. Like, it's not, there aren't too many moves where I'm left scratching my head as to why he did it. Um, That makes me wonder, do we give Dubas too much credit because he's kind of like us? Because he's easier for us to understand. And I looked back at a few moves that we were probably higher on at the time than we are now. Um, that haven't gone as well as we would have hoped. And that we were probably more forgiving towards. And so I'm wondering if there's a trend there or did we just get unlucky? So Ego's going to take a little bit of a beating here. But mm-hmm. we're going to look at four different things that Dubas did and how they went. And the first one is Nazem Kadri for Tyson Berry and Alexander Kerfoot. Mm. Um, I think at this point, pretty much everyone concedes the Leafs lost this trade. Yeah, I mean, I guess in, in some sense, I feel like it's it's reductive to put trades into, oh, this team won and this team lost, because trades can have different values to different teams, right? It's not it's yeah. not necessarily zero-sum. But yes, the Leafs lost this trade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have to, to acknowledge the facts here. I mean, Kadri is having an absolute gangbuster season for well, Colorado. And, well, I, I'm not even concerned with what Kadri's done in, in Colorado. Yeah. I mean, he's been great. I, I, I love Kadri, right? 
so I'm, I'm happy he's doing well. And if the Leafs don't win the Cup, I would love for Colorado to win the Cup. And mm-hmm. I'd love to see him succeed. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I just don't think we've got a lot really back for him. Yes. Right. Um, Kerfoot has been fine. I, I have come, I have settled on the fact that I overrated him um, at the time. Maybe not at the time of the trade, but like in his first season, I think I overrated him. I thought he'd be better as a. I thought he was better as a center than he was given credit for, mm-hmm. but now it's just like quite consistent that you know he he's performed better at, at, at left wing, which is something people said at the time as well. And, mm-hmm. and you know we we didn't just miss that, but we were hopeful that he he could be the center um, of of like a third line, and and he's been fine. Just the real issue was Barry was terrible for the Leafs, and, and yeah, like that that's just it just didn't work at all wasn't a good fit um for what we needed yeah so you know in our analysis of it i think we were a bit cautious about barry even from the time we said we don't know how good this guy really is he's an offensive defenseman he shoots a lot um might be being made to look better by colorado's general rising tide um I, I, you know, I have to say I didn't anticipate that he would piss me off quite as much as he did because Tyson Berry <laughs> drove me crazy. He, he, he did for me as well. And it's just like, I, I think part of it was like, Barry was everything that people who hated Jake Gardner thought Jake Gardner was. Yes. Okay. Okay, I, I'm not going to do this for more than one minute again. <laughs> I just have to say, it. there are basically two problems with Tyson Berry. One of them is that he is genuinely not very good defensively. He's just not, you know, he doesn't really do a whole lot in his own zone. That's of any use. He is a capable puck mover, but even as your baseline, it has to be, this guy is pretty feeble defensively. And, you know, we've talked about like Morgan Riley being feeble defensively. Tyson Berry's worse. Tyson Berry is frail defensively. So use him accordingly. The other thing is that, he thinks that it is Tyson Berry time with a much greater frequency than I think it is, in fact, Tyson Berry time. He loves to drill a shot towards the net. And, you know, on a good day, it hits the net. But sometimes it just goes off the end boards and then is recovered by the opposition. And your possession is ended with the glory of Tyson Berry intact. And so it was very frustrating to, to watch. It also has to be said, I think... The Nazem Kadri trade was as much as anything occasioned by the fact that Kadri got suspended in a key playoff series for the second time in a row. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't do that each of those years, maybe he's still around. And I'm not saying that was the whole reason. Dubas was clearly trying to reallocate from a perceived position of strength center to upgrade at defense. I get the logic of why he thought he was doing it. He was saying, okay, we'll take a slight hit from Kadri to Kerfoot for the sake of adding Barry. Well, we took a bigger hit from Kadri to Kerfoot than we anticipated, and Barry turned out to be kind of useless. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I think if there's a lesson for us there, it's to be careful about uh, forwards with great fancy stats on the Colorado Avalanche. I, I have certainly learned that lesson because there's been one every year, seemingly. Well, yeah, and, and I, I guess the one who I, I, I really like, but I, I don't watch enough of him to know if he's legit, but, like, every time I watch him, I think he's good, and his fancy sets are absurd, is Val Nichushkin. Yeah. 
Like, he's a real player. It's just he turned into a meme because Evolving Wild said he was better than Leon Dreisaitl one year in performance. And a lot of people got very mad about that. Mm-hmm. Um, which I get. But yeah, like, they have good players. And it can be tough to, to screen out. You know, I, we've joked in the past about the Pittsburgh Penguins and their, their Mark Donks. Players who get called up, play with Crosby and Malkin, and suddenly produce a bunch. But, you know, in, in the context of that, like, Jake Gwensel turned out to be a legit NHL yeah, goal Yeah, a legit, really good player. Yeah, and so it was kind of hard to parse him out from all the, the waves of guys, but he was for real. You know, yeah. some of these Colorado players are, to some extent, for real. And Kerfoot, again, is not bad. He just didn't turn out to be able to play 3C at the level we were hoping. Mm-hmm. Nichushkin's a UFA at this this year. I, I will be really curious to see um, what his results are like if he goes somewhere outside Colorado. Because again, I think he is good, but it's also he, his his numbers got so much better once he got to Colorado. Yeah, you might worry that there's a bit of an inflationary effect there going for sure. Um, so yeah, you know, looking at this trade. I think with Kadri for sure, we maybe could have done more to question whether we really had to do it. Um, it but felt like I, something I, had to happen. I don't but. think it it was silly to trade Kadri at the time. Like Katya has pointed this out many times since he mm-hmm. was already getting marginalized at even strength, and like, you know, not dissimilar to how Taveras and Nylander have been at times this year. Mm-hmm. There, his power play skill was was papering over some cracks. Yes. That's true. And, you know, the Leafs have a t- fantastic power play without him. Better than Colorado's. Mm-hmm. So, you can say that that value is not necessarily lost here. And definitely, you know, do I think Kadri is scoring 83 points for the Toronto Maple Leafs? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, he's on an insane heater this season also. You know, he's already broken his career high in points by 22. And this is a player who's 31 years old. So, like, it's some pretty crazy stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think he's going to probably hit this level again in terms of raw production. But yeah, like I think that there were there were a lot of things that, again, sort of made it made sense, and yet each of them kind of went a little bit against Toronto, maybe. You know? Mm-hmm. But, you, you know, given a time machine, I think Dubas and we would undo this trade. Well, and, and apparently the first... The, he was looking at Brody even then. Right, there was a rumored Brody plus Jankowski trade, yeah, which we said, "Oh, we wouldn't want to do that." Um, and I think part of that was like we weren't that high on Brody at the time because it looked like he, see- at the time, he, I believe, he had not really put up good seasons without Giordano. Yes, and right? that was something that we talked about when we signed Brody. We said we look good. The only concern is was he being carried by Giordano, and the answer turned and, out to be no. Yeah, and and Jankowski, I think we also just didn't like at all. Yeah, I stand by that. <laughs> Kerfoot is yeah. a better player than Jankowski. I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, you know, live and learn. This next one is kind of painful and yet still stunning how this has gone. Dennis Malgan for Mason Marchment. I, I re- so I wrote the trade article on PPP for that. Mm-hmm. And I want to nuke that thing off the face of the internet. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm like, this seems good. Marchment wasn't really impressing with the Leafs. You know, it seems like we traded a a, a, a good AHLer who's not going to make it to the NHL for a slightly better AHLer who has made it to the NHL and could be useful. 
Yes. And I was like, <laughs> like, could not have been more wrong. And I don't, I don't think, I remember watching Marchment as a Leaf, and I, I thought, and I, I know a lot of people, a lot, like Species uh, was, was high on Marchment. Who, mm-hmm. uh, Species watches a ton of Marlies, mm-hmm. right? And even he said he just, he wasn't that great as a Leaf. He, he just seemed to be kind of there, not that impressive. I didn't doubt that there could have been a player who, who made the NHL. Right, and who, like, survived in the NHL, but, God, I did not see this coming. No, and, you know, did anyone? Uh, I right, can't they, even imagine. Uh, we, co- we mentioned this last week, but, like, at least as of last week, like, Mason Marshman has, like, the second highest on-ice, you know, XG in the NHL, behind Patrice Bergeron. Yeah, so, like, that's bananas. That's insane that that happened. For the record, um, Mason Marshman has 40 points this season. 40 points is actually more than he had in any season in the NHL, any season in the AHL, any season in the ECHL, where he played for half a year, any of his seasons in junior except for one, which was a split season, wherein he got to, uh, let me see here, 51. But, like, he's scoring at a pace that is, like, as good as he's ever done in his life in any league. I, I do not see how you could have seen this coming. Um, now, that said, there were probably a lot of things that might have led us to le- lean towards Duba's side of the transaction. Mm-hmm. And, and there are things that I think about. One, you know, Malkin is like a zippy little winger. He's 5'9". Marshman is a big, you know, kind of lumbering presence. He's 6'4". There's a huge size disparity there. Um, I do think that maybe we underrated the size aspect there. Not because I don't think size matters, to be honest. I kept thinking Marchment wasn't that strong on his skates for a guy as big as he is. Mm-hmm. Like, he seemed to get knocked down a lot. Um, Marchment struggled a lot with injuries, repeatedly. And that's partly why his point totals were never that high in any professional league until now. Um... Sometimes players do recover and sort of bloom late. That's the other thing is I think maybe we were a bit too keen on the aging curve because by the time this trade happened, we looked, we're like, okay, Marchman is 24. This is probably about what he is at this point. Um, why not trade him for Malgan, who's a year and a half younger, who had already played more NHL games and still has by a lot. Like, Marchman... You know, and he's gone to the Swiss League now, and I don't think he's coming back. But he got to 192 games. Marshman is at 84. Mm-hmm. You know, it, like it just—it seemed like it all lined up for not too much is going to come out of this player. Um, why don't we take a flyer on someone younger? Uh, and finally, the Panthers at that time were run by Dale Talon. I am not going to apologize for saying Dale Talon did a terrible job running the Florida Panthers, because by and large, I think he did. Mm-hmm. He made a lot of mistakes. Um, the expansion draft is the most famous, but far from the only one. All of that said, uh, you know, he did kind of rob our boy on this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, Marchman has just had absurd on-ice results this year. And maybe, maybe, you know, you credit a lot of that to... To Sam Reinhardt, who's, oh, I think, is the most common. Oh, I do. To be clear, <laughs> 100%, I think he's getting sort of carried. 
But, like, I didn't even know that he was good enough to be carried this high. Yeah, I mean, it's... And it could just be, like, this confluence of, you know, teammate coaching. Like, Florida, Florida plays a real fire wagon style. Mm-hmm. Right? Which, side note, we, we've mentioned this before, but, like, you know, there's, there's understandably tons of skepticism about the Leafs in the playoffs. And, like, oh, you know, the Leafs don't play a game that'll work in the playoffs, which I think is not enti- not completely without merits, but also, you know, the Leafs are not really that fire wagon mm-hmm. um, compared, to, compared to Florida, who is, like, the most fire wagon team in the league. Yeah. Right? Like, th- that skepticism should also be reserved for Florida, uh, who, like the Leafs, have done nothing in the playoffs and play, you know, an incredibly offensively toted style at 5-on-5. Five five. That's also, like, quite high event. Yeah, Ready? I, um, for the record, Florida has a good chance of pulling this off because they're scoring more than four goals a game. Yeah. Which is bananas. But I think it's maybe not well understood just how exposed that defense might be, and Ben Chirot is not going to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like that, that, you know, there was a 7-6 game this week. The Leafs blew a big lead. What else is new? But, like, I kept thinking, everyone's, like, you know, giving these odes to the greatness of the Florida offense, justly so, their offense is nuts, but I'm like, they did get scored on six times. Like, <laughs> you know, maybe let's not lose sight of the fact that they're not a very steady defensive team. Like, I think that they might have a bit more difficulty than it looks like. So um, something Michael yeah. McCurdy pointed out about Florida when they, when they mathematically clinched the playoffs is, like, this is a team that is driven almost entirely by its five-on-five offense. Mm-hmm. Almost everything else about them is actually kind of ordinary, but their five-on-five offense is, like, comfortably the best in the league. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's a pretty good thing to have. If, if that's, like, your one trick, that's a pretty good thing to have as a one trick. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And there's a few ways you can view that, both positively or negatively. You could say, okay, you know, this team has something that they're the best in. Right? It's, you, can't, you can't deny this. this. This is undeniable. They are going to get chances. Mm-hmm. Right? And then the the way to view that negatively is like this team only has one thing that they rely on effectively mm-hmm. right and if you are able to slow the game down at all they're not going to beat you by being super tough to to get to the front of that on they're not going to beat you most likely by like absurd power play results mm-hmm. i think their power play is is like surprisingly not great it actually. was it was pretty middling and then they did get drew yeah. and they did give the leaves feds mm-hmm. on the other night so you know it's possible that's a place to anticipate real improvement but yeah up till now it hasn't been that great this year yeah their their xg rates at least are around average on the power play we know that that's not always completely indicative because of you know the way power plays work but that's a data point mm. um i mean we were chatting about this yesterday i would rather play florida than boston because florida at least seems like they're going to play the style of game that toronto can play mm-hmm. and boston is going to play a style of game that is like or it's going to tr- it's going to be complete like the, we've talked about this so many times with Boston, it's about who can impose the style that they want, mm-hmm. right? Boston wants to slow things down. Toronto does not. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Leafs Panthers would be a hell of a fun series if it ever came to that. Mm-hmm. Um, we might die, but yeah, I, I think you know, turning it back to Malgin for Marchment, this was almost a stereotypical trade for old school kind of fans to dunk on new ones. Like, mm. if, if they want to take a victory lap, I sort of get it on this one, because it was, 
the little zippy winger with lots of point production being possibly a little overrated compared to the bigger, you know, more physical net front kind of finisher type. And also a bit of an over-reliance on age curves that say whatever you are by 24 is probably what you're going to be. Um, all of that said, I do also think that the Marchment thing has developed in a difficult-to-foresee way. Like, a lot of crazy shit had to go down developmentally, and I still don't know what to expect from him going forward. He's mm-hmm. established he should probably be in the NHL for a bit. <laughs> I think that that's clear. But yes. I... I do think that... Um, He's also a UFA after this year, by the way. I, I have no clue what the fuck I would pay Mason Marchman. It's not that hard for me to envision a scenario where someone overbuys on this and pays for him to be what he was with the Panthers and winds up kind of disappointed. Um, maybe that's sour grapes because my team gave up on him and now look at him go. But I do think that... There are some questions here as to what craziness is going on when he's on, you know, one of the best offensive teams in living memory. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not living, recent memory, anyway. And uh, and he's really producing at a rate that's not like anything he's ever done before. So, yeah, I, I'm still kind of baffled by this one, and yet I could see how it would sort of suit our biases as nerdy kind of fans. And, you know, maybe there is a lesson here. That said, the next trade was, like, kind of an old-schooly maneuver to some mm-hmm. extent. And it didn't really work out either. And that was no. the Nick Filino trade. Yeah, so this was one where we thought it made sense. And I, I maintain that it made sense. Um, and it actually, it actually makes even more sense given the context of, like, this season. Like, if anything, I think Dewis was, was sort of prescient in a way. Because what have we said this season? Man, Tavares and Nander have really struggled defensively, mm-hmm. right? And if you could put a good defensive winger on, on that group who could just, like, contribute offensively, that would be a, a godsend. That would be amazing. And that's what Nick Fadino was, at least in theory. Did not work out that way. Right. I think the Nick Fadino thing is a, a combination of a lot of different factors. A big one is people wanted Taylor Hall. Mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate over whether Hall would have waived his no-trade clause to come to Toronto or whether he would have done something about it. So far as I can tell, there's no reason to assume he wouldn't. The Leafs didn't seriously pursue it, so we don't really know, but I will assume they could have gotten him. I think if you can, you should get Taylor Hall in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. Um but yeah, you can also see why we wanted Nick Felino or why we liked the idea of him, because this guy has been a very good defensive forward for a very long time. He is again this year. Um, I don't know how happy Boston is with everything that's going on with him, because his offense is basically done now. Mm-hmm. Um, all the same, still very good defense results on a good defensive team, um, as he's always produced. And... He got injured quite early into his Toronto tenure. Uh, And it's not that hard to think that maybe had he stayed healthy, had John DeVaro stayed healthy, that ends very differently. This is the thing about rentals is there's a decent chance that things will just go wrong and you won't have a chance to recover from it. Mm -hmm. 
it, it, yeah, and it's way more likely you get like a spontaneous bad event than a spontaneous good event. Like it's always like a spontaneous in, a, a, an injury is a lot more likely than this guy discovered he can actually really shoot the puck really well and he just wasn't doing it before. That only happens to Mason Marchment for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so I think you can say this is why I don't like rentals. And I think, you know, rentals And the price are, paid was high. Yeah, it was expensive. And there's definitely an argument that Jubis decided this was the missing piece. And, you know, even on the footage from the behind the scenes series, there was some stuff about him throwing in a fourth round pick. And he was like, I'm not going to let a fourth round pick hold us back from this thing. And I'm thinking, well, that kind of stings now because we didn't get anything out of it. And it looks like we threw away another thing and we didn't negotiate that well, (laughs) you know, but that's how it goes. Um, the biggest thing for Felino is, you know, if you say the Malgan for Marchment thing was a proof of the failures of new school biases, Felino was like exactly the kind of guy you stereotypically win with in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So if Dubas was making mistakes in each of these and then, you know, they haven't worked out, they were mistakes in different directions. I don't think that there's necessarily a pattern there. Um, I think as much as anything, Dubas is showing he believes this team is in an all-in position, and I think rightly so. And I will actually still stand by the logic on that one to say that they should have gone all-in. They were in a weak division, and they had a good team. It made perfect sense to try and get a rental. Fully mm-hmm. know the price was a little high, and it ended really badly, but I get it. Yeah. And I guess... The hope with Felino's offense was that at that point he hadn't had as many years of like absolute dog shit shooting, mm-hmm. right? It, it was basically one full season and that partial season of like, and I think the the hope in some sense, if you're a release fan, was okay. He hasn't been like a bad shooter for that long. Columbus is not an offensively talented team. Um. Maybe if we play him with Tavares or if you play him with like Matthews or something, that that gets fixed. And it ended up just not really being the case. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this season his offense has totally evaporated. You know, as you slide down the the roster, that's compounded by the fact that you don't play with as good players. You get fewer good opportunities. Boston's a very defense oriented team. Um, I am glad that we aren't paying him three point eight million this year and next. Because, I'm sorry, at that price point, it's just not good enough. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I got the logic that got Dubas there. And, you know, maybe it's a reason to be shy of rentals. But I don't think this is worse than an overpay. That's just all it is. Um, it does really hurt, though. Yeah, no, it sucked. Like, and that's the case for, like, maybe I don't want to bother with rentals anymore, is that when they blow up on you... You you wind up with empty hands and out of a big asset. So, it, it it's rentals are like the definition of that tweet of like you know, me me reaping. Yes, this is awesome, and me sowing. It's like oh, what the fuck? This is bullshit, right? And you like experience that at the draft. It's like everyone's outside having fun with their first round picks, and you're just like sitting there. It's like god damn it. <laughs> yes, it can leave you a little bit embittered, and uh, you know because if the trade happens at the deadline for a rental. They're only on your roster for, like, the blink of an eye, um, from which you primarily remember the playoff failure, and that's it. 
So yeah, th there's uh, not a lot of time to enjoy it. Um, Peter Barazic. Mm. And this is obviously a much lamented signing. This is one that the Leafs are still paying the price for, obviously. He's still on the roster, and they're going to have a decision as to whether they want to pay what it costs to unload him in the offseason. Um, some people have already said, we've seen the last game Peter Mrazek is going to play in Toronto, or for Toronto, um, because he's hurt. He's probably going to be out the rest of the year, they think. And Jack Campbell is anticipated to be the playoff starter. And so we've got two years after this one at 3.8. Um, I think it's fair to say, look, this has turned out really badly. Mm. I don't think anyone's happy with it, from Razik to Dubas to anyone else. Um, he has been injured a lot. He hasn't been good enough when he's played. He looked to maybe be getting his form together a little bit just before he went down with this injury that ended his year. I, like, it, it hasn't worked out. And now the only question is, okay, was it foreseeable that it should have worked out? And is it worth bailing out of this deal even at the price of a draft pick? Or is it worth hoping that he's better next year? And a lot of people are wouldn't even want to consider it. Like, they want rid of him. Um, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, it's, it's not a good deal. It's just, it's also... Again, I feel... It, you, you you stack up this deal relative to like or, or, or alongside the other deals Dubas has made and it's like to some extent you are going to just have misses sometimes and mm -hmm. those misses are often likely to come with goalies because they are hard to predict yeah like the thing that got me when I was looking around the league okay like look at comparable goalie signings I think a lot of people look at the goalie market last year and they look at Frederick Anderson who's having a great year in Carolina and they think, oh, man, you know, this is brutal. But one, there was a constituency of zero people who wanted to re-sign Frederick Anderson after the year and a half he had in Toronto, where he was straight up not very good. Mm. Um, well, also probably struggling with injuries for at least some of it. But also a lot of the moves that were being made um, didn't really work out. Uh, the most prominent are for Seattle, who got two players who were supposed to be good goaltenders in Philip Grubauer and then Chris Dreiger was coming off a strong year. Both of them have been quite bad. Um, Grubauer for the first half of the year was atrocious. And that's kind of what can happen with goalies. The Red Wings got Alex Nedeljkovic in a trade that a lot of people were saying, geez, should Carolina have done that? Nedeljkovic hasn't had a great year. He's playing behind Detroit, but goalies are kind of crazy. Mm. And so was it foreseeable that Mrazek would just turn into a pumpkin? You can say he would have had a harder time. But this is a guy who's played like 270 NHL games. Um, he's been good for a lot of them. He was good uh, for a couple years in Carolina. He had a good season for Detroit earlier in his career. Right. At a certain point, it's like sometimes shit just goes against you, you know? Um. Uh... I find myself looking at this and thinking for what we paid to get him as a platoon for what we intended to do with him to platoon him with Jack Campbell. It made sense. And I think he'll probably be better next year unless injuries have really, you know, basically ended his capacity to play net. Like this just feels like the hell year that sometimes players and teams have, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I, 
I agree with that. So, yeah. So if we put all this together, mm-hmm. is, is there some sort of commonality in in the mistakes that we think Dubas has made? It, it just seeing it put together, I, my immediate intuition is no. Mm-hmm. It seems like he, he makes mistakes of different varieties, which maybe sounds like you know a, a negative thing. Um, you stack this up against his successes. I think his successes still come out on top, but yeah, I mean, I, I even look, still looking at it, I don't. These these are clear mistakes. They clearly didn't work out well. I still don't think they were completely irrational. Yeah. I think you know you can see as much as anything. This is what it the, the these are the mistakes that you kind of make when you're a team that has had cap issues and has not had a lot of playoff success. Like those are the things that come together. So the Kadri trade probably made at least partially in response to Kadri got suspended twice and we didn't win the first round series. The Felino trade probably made in response to we haven't had the defensive acumen we thought we think is necessary to win top grade playoff games and we need to upgrade for the playoff run. Um, the Morazic thing is we can't afford a starting goalie because we're kind of capped out. So we're going to try and get someone in the mid range to go along with our, at the time, Wonderkind, who we hope will be a 1A. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all mistakes that kind of make sense, except Malgan for Marchman, I think was just. Marchman's been in our organization, he's been injured a lot. He's 24. We don't anticipate a whole lot is going to happen. And I don't know that it was foreseeable that this would come out of it. I really don't. So, yeah, I mean, I think you put this together and Dubas... Dubas winds up looking okay because there are reasons for the mistakes that he's made. And at most you can say he hasn't you know, stunned anyone as in terms of being a hard bargainer, which I think mm. is a theme in other aspects of his career. But he was never really stupid. So, yeah. I guess that's kind of what I come to. Yeah, um, I, w- I would tend to agree with that. It's just... I, I think this, this shows... It's hard to be a GM. It's hard to make decisions. And even reasonable decisions have like a pretty high chance of failure there yeah there is no um gm in the nhl who hasn't made mistakes um you can name pretty much anybody and there are issues you, you know steve eiserman um probably hasn't had the greatest time with the nadelkovich signing um he's also gotten a lot of big old defensemen who haven't done much and the red wings are still you know not to spoil anything not very good yeah, Joe Sackick signed Jack Johnson. Yeah, and you know, for all the good that that did. Um, Julian Brisebois actually is harder to find a real mistake for, but he's been presiding over a team that was already a dynasty when he got the full reins. And, in fairness to Sackick as well, they signed Jack Johnson to like a one-year 750K, so like that's not sewer. That's, it, 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 there's, you probably could do better just for a sixth defenseman or whatever, but like that's not a huge issue either. Yeah, like it's which it's is the not, only thing that came to mind. It's not devastating, but again, like a lot of this stuff comes from the circumstances that you get into. The Tampa Bay Lightning have a bunch of players who were cheaper on their second contracts. They have the advantages of contention, of a favorable tax climate, and everything that have eased the pressure a little bit around the cap. 
And the, the Leafs, again, are responding to the twin pressures of we've lost some playoff series we should have won, mm-hmm. and we don't have a lot of spare cap space. So I think, yeah, ultimately, if there's something I'm going to probably learn from this, it's that <laughs> who you are at age 24 isn't gospel. And be careful about trusting anyone who just played for the Colorado Avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so I think that pretty much sums it up. Was there anything we wanted to discuss? Anything else we wanted to discuss this week? I think we're covered. Awesome. So thank you, everyone, for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fludeman's work at pensionpanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RBNATFludeman. We'll see you next week. Bye.